from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. Be sure to sign up for the free mailing list, where you will get the episode dropped directly into your inbox every Tuesday. I'm pushing the newsletter because I want to have control over contact with my audience in case my Instagram gets hacked, and if I move to a new platform, I'd like to be able to tell everyone where to find me, so rest assured I will not spam you or sell your information to some third-party agency that will then spam you with clickbait for chewable Viagra or something like that. But anyway, I digress. On today's show, we have a novelist, short story writer, and podcaster. His debut gothic thriller, The Spite House, is out right now, and his podcast, Healthy Fears, is available on all the major podcasting platforms. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Johnny Compton. Johnny, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Yes, sir. Thank you for joining me on this 13th day of March 2023. I came across your book by way of a bookstagram recommendation and was really impressed with the unique original content of not only the book, but as I found your podcast as well. You use the time-tested classic horror element of the haunted house, but also paint it with the context of a spite house, which I made a few guesses before reading the book as to what a spite house actually meant, but was shocked when I found out what it actually was. So I'm really looking forward to talking with you about your creative, highly original content. Thank you. I appreciate that. A lot of luck involved and just kind of a willingness to try to do something that seemed a little bit different and hopeful that it was going to turn out as well as it seems to have oh, based yeah. on the feedback I've received. Definitely. So the Spite House is about a man and his two daughters that are on the run for some reason. The details are given in a very ambiguous way and are slowly clarified with little revelations throughout the book. Are these revelations that ultimately lead to the climax plotted, or do they just evolve as you wrote the story? And how do you space them apart to keep a steady pace that keeps the reader on the hook so they don't lose interest? These were definitely plotted. There were probably a couple of little elements that organically came up as the story went along. And I don't create an outline. I'm a seat of the pants, as they say, kind of writer. Mm -hmm. 
So I usually don't create much of a thorough outline. I use Microsoft OneNote to kind of somewhat keep me on task. And then I go back and do more of my outlining after I've written the first draft and then go back and make sure I got my edits in order. But for the the revelations, they were in my head, at least plotted ahead, even if they weren't outlined. So that's why I can't really keep tabs on what was or wasn't specifically prepared in advance versus what kind of came up as the story went along. Mm-hmm. But you try to have within reason a certain amount prepared before you sit down to write it. And then the pacing of it as well. I had a general idea for where certain revelations would take place. And I was trying to just more so think of it in terms of minor plot twists as the story progresses. And one of my favorite movies overall and my favorite horror movie is Alien. Mm. And one of the reasons why I like it, I've written about this on my website. There are just little inserts of new developments that happen as the story progresses. And that's one of my favorite things about the film where even who the protagonist is and things that I didn't really pay attention to until I got older, but even who the protagonist is when the story opens based on the visual cues and movie making storytelling, you would expect it to be the character Kane because he wakes up from the pod first and that's the first person we see. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of the intrepid one. Whenever they land on the planet, he's the one who wants to go exploring and is kind of painted as the bravest of the characters. And then obviously he ends up with a face hugger on his face. And then from there, things just kind of constantly are being revealed to us what is even the nature of the alien itself? It's the face hugger, then it's the chest burster, then it gets into <laughs> its full grown status. And you don't know what to expect throughout so much of the movie. And then who's going to be the protagonist changes from Kane to Dallas until we finally get around to it being Ripley. So you kind of cycle through three different protagonists. And then I've written about this, but I think that Ash being a robot is one of the all time best kind of ridiculous, but I love it anyway. Movie twists of all time. When you look, and I've rewatched the movie a million times. You look back on it and there really aren't a whole lot of Easter eggs to kind of suggest that robots even exist in the world of Alien, much Mm -hmm. less that one of the characters is actually an android. Um, (laughs) But there's little, little, like just the subtlest, subtlest of hints, but kind of a cheat. But I think if you execute it well enough, people will forgive a cheat. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's kind of what they do there. And I know that that has infected my desire to tell a story in a certain way. And so that's what I was thinking of in terms of the pacing, just constantly wanting to keep people on their toes and pace it in a way where every handful of chapters or every few chapters, you're getting more information that makes you wonder, okay, what's going to happen next? Mm. Yeah. You mentioned alien. I think the last time I saw that was probably in the early nineties, but I don't know about you, but there's a lot of movies from my childhood that I've gone back and watched as an adult that don't really hold up for me. (laughs) And so I wouldn't know about alien because I honestly haven't seen it since I was a kid, but other people that I talked to, they said, Oh yeah, I watched it two weeks ago and said it still holds up. Yeah. I've been the same way as you. Like I'll go back and watch certain things that I remember as a child Mm. being an all time great. And then I get older and you're like, Oh, this actually wasn't, wasn't (laughs) what I thought it was as a kid. And, Jaws 2 pops to mind. Oh, yeah. Which is, you know, when I was a kid, part of it was I didn't appreciate how different and actually what Jaws itself was going for. And I remember my dad hating, still hating, I presume, <laughs> but we haven't talked about it. But Jaws 2 would be on TBS like forever when I was a kid. It would just always be on. Mm. To me, it was just like, oh, cool. Sharks eating more people. 
great. You know, <laughs> like this is what the movies are about. Right. Uh-huh. And I remember my dad being like, this is so stupid. And every time we would come on, he would just be like, I can't stand this. This is so stupid. And then I would be like, oh, what, what are you talking about? Like they're, you know, they're, the shark is eating people. This is what the first movie is doing what the first movie did. Uh-huh. You know, like more of the same can't be that bad. Mm-hmm. Then I got older at a certain point. I was like, I get it now. This is actually really kind of a horrible idea to revisit this. Not only the idea of the movie, but like place it in basically the same place with the, <laughs> the same, you know, Chief Brody. And like mm-hmm. for whatever reason, the town is like, I know what happened before, but surely it can't <laughs> happen again. So I've, I've had those experiences with other movies like you've talked about as well. Ghostbusters 2 jumps to mind, too. I loved that when I was a kid. And it was like, then you get older and you're like, oh, don't so, tell so me they, that. I want to believe that that still holds up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, I, I love the original Ghostbusters. And like, I mean, my big problem with Ghostbusters 2 is when I got older and I was like, so. Somehow in New York City, the media capital of like basically the world, nobody caught the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man on camera. So like in Ghostbusters 2, they basically have discredited the Ghostbusters and everybody thinks it was a big hoax. And I'm like, so <laughs> all the none of the news people, none of the footage caught any of the, you know, literally all the madness of the ghosts happening. And like they're like, ah, you know, the Ghostbusters, I think they said something about them, like creating some kind of hallucinogen or maybe something to like mm-hmm. trick people and i'm like so that's what we're going with huh like we're mm-hmm. that determined to just reset the story that we're going to figure out a way to erase what happened previously <laughs> even though that makes zero sense given the setting but fortunately alien still holds up as far as i'm concerned again i'm biased it's my favorite the thing i just rewatched that recently john carpenter not only holds up it's probably better than i even remember it mm. from when i was younger and i hadn't rewatched that in a few years at least and i've watched it again recently and i was like i can't believe how good this is <laughs> it's, i just was startled by it and that's another one where keeps you on your toes probably infected my storytelling style when i was much younger just constantly little revelations as the story goes along and really keeps you on the edge of your seat as far as who you can trust mm. Well, in relation to crazy concepts like a Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, <laughs> when I finally I finally found out when I started your book what the Spite House actually was, it's basically a house that is constructed to piss off a person or a group of people, and it's not even necessarily meant to be lived in. So can you expand a little on how you came across this strange phenomenon and tell us a little bit about the history of this strange, I guess I would say, revenge tactic? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I ran into an article and I cannot for the life of me, I've tried to hunt it down and I can't pinpoint exactly which article it was. But I guess probably six years ago or so now, mm-hmm. I ran into an article about spite houses. And that led me to the Wikipedia page about spite houses. And I started reading that. And then that leads you to more Mm -hmm. articles and stories and books about spite houses. And I was just fascinated. I went down this, this little rabbit hole of spite houses. And like you said, it's this bizarre revenge tactic of literally building a house just to express that you're pissed off with a neighbor, a family member in some kind of property dispute, the government in some kind of property dispute. Mm -hmm. I've even gone back and revisited some that, you know, I've looked at more recently where people are upset with a church. All kinds of different things. I read about one in England that I'm kind of glad I didn't read about previously because I would have totally just stolen that entire story because it involves an actual statue of a devil and everything. You know, if you're a horror writer, Mm. who can resist a a statue of a devil facing a church Mm. (laughs) Um, just to spite the church? So I've read all those entries and started picking pieces of each little backstory up and kind of cataloging which ones I thought were the most interesting and would fit well for a story. And then I kind of did an informal survey. I started imagining writing it 
as a, a haunted house story, because I can't imagine a more ideal mm-hmm. location for a haunting than a place built entirely out of spiked, you know, Match made about. heaven. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And I went and looked it up and I couldn't find any haunted house stories set in a spite house. And it seemed to most people had never even heard of a spite house. And I kind of just went around for a while here in San Antonio, everywhere I went, you know, restaurants and just assorted places. I'd ask the waitress, I'd ask the person behind the counter at a gas station, just have you ever heard of a spite house? And they would be like, what in the world is that? And I'd, I'd give them the quickest high level explanation. And I would just kind of make up, oh, I'm doing some research. And part of it is just to ask people about it. Mm-hmm. But really, I was just doing my homework. Like, man, I think people haven't really heard of this. So now I've got a pretty fresh idea. I mean, it's, it's a haunted house story. So it's not entirely fresh, but nothing new can be told under the sun, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But can you put a fresh spin on a classic? Mm-hmm. And so it seemed like I had a fresh angle on something and I wanted to pursue that. And so that's where it kind of went from there. And that one you were talking about, the devil facing the church in England, I think you said? I think it's in England. If I remember correctly, it was in England, yeah. Was that like from way back in the day or was that relatively recent? That was from, uh, it had to be at least pre-World War II. Oh, okay. The story I read involved the devil statue surviving the Blitz while the church did not, which was apparently part of the spiteful curse placed on the church by the person who built the building, which I guess it technically wasn't a spite mm. house. It was just more of a spite building overall, but he built this building across from the church because he lost out on the contract to, I believe, build a church and wanted to spite them for that and built it with this devil facing the church that he said would survive even if the church gets destroyed. And then the blitz <laughs> came and the church was apparently destroyed and the, the statue of this devil lived on. Yeah. The reason I asked is because I never really thought about it before, but that group, the Satanic Temple, have you ever heard of them? Yes. They're kind of like, uh, I guess you could say they're like a civil rights group, separation of church and state. That's kind of what they do with the Baphomet. And uh, they put a Baphomet next to the Ten Commandments, I think, (laughs) something like that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. A spike, I guess, like monument, (laughs) sort Mm -hmm. of, so to speak. Spike monument. Yeah, because when I first saw it, I thought maybe it was somebody died as the result of foul play. So they had this spite and this lingering spirit or something like that. But then I found out like, wow, people can be really petty. (laughs) Super petty. And the idea of like having the time and energy and resources to dedicate to this kind of revenge that's really inconveniencing yourself. And, you know, the old saying, the best revenge is living well. Or mm-hmm. I guess, you know, creating a, a place <laughs> just to just to spoil somebody else's view, just to yeah. remind them every day of how much you hate them yeah. as just a constructed monument of your own to that is a strange behavior, like you said, and extraordinarily petty. Well, from the research you did, was there a spite house that really stood out to you because it was, you know, like really petty, elaborate, funny, something like that? Yeah, the Skinny House in Boston, which from what I've read may or may not be a spite house. Some of these things are apocryphal. Some houses are just built with strange architecture for unknown reasons. And then they get the story of a spite house attached to them. Mm-hmm. From what I've seen, somebody told me about one in Pasadena. In fact, when I was on my book tour, that was the first place I went to. Normally, I've told my spite house story and ask, has anybody ever heard of one? In most places, they say no. And then in Pasadena, one gentleman said, oh, yeah, we've got one here. And then I went and looked it up and there's a little bit of dispute about, is it a spite house or is it just quirky architecture? And the story has been kind of lost, I guess, a little bit to time or it's at least debated. But the one in Boston, the skinny house jumped out at me because it is, as the name implies, very thin, looks strange, built tall, sandwiched between a couple of other houses, you know, different stories behind what, you know, the reason for the spite was. 
whether it was like a land dispute between family members or the government, but just the architecture of it. When I looked at it, it looks from the front so narrow mm-hmm. and so bizarre, and yet it's tall. And I just thought this is like really eerie and also something very different from a haunted house perspective. Most haunted houses are larger, sprawling spaces that, you know, you have a lot of room to explore, a lot of room for ghosts to kind of hide or for you to hide from the ghosts. Mm-hmm. And then I just thought, what if you had to confine all of that in a, a much tighter space mm-hmm. and have to try to deal with that instead? That kind of brought me back a little bit to some of my favorite ghost stories from when I was a kid, which would be sometimes stuff you'd read about where it would just literally be more so of a shack than mm-hmm. an entire huge haunted house. But, you know, that old abandoned shack there, that's the place that uh, X, Y, or Z happened. If you go there, you won't make it out alive. Mm-hmm. And you'd read stories like that. And I just thought, we don't have a lot of those in the haunted house fiction realm anymore. Mm-hmm. So I thought that would be kind of fun to explore as well as far as a a place that is just really unusual visually and also provides an idea of feeling more trapped and claustrophobic than maybe the average haunted house story does. So that's why the skinny house in Boston jumped out at me. And I mean, it's literally just called the skinny house. If you type it in skinny house, Boston, the pictures come up, you can read all about it. That's apparently a landmark of sorts in Boston, a little quirky landmark that they have. And it's got a lot of interesting potential backstory behind it. <laughs> yeah. I imagine most of the spite houses that are like aesthetically just the outward appearance is really bizarre or off-putting or something like that. They must be relatively old because I would imagine if somebody was trying to construct a house to look sinister, weird, off-putting, or just mess things up, like building codes would prevent them from doing so, like bringing property value down if it looks weird or something <laughs> like that. So, Yeah, that's a lot of what I read as well. You get a lot of code issues. And that's why the architecture is strange. While a lot of them are so either thin or there's another spite house that I can't remember the name of now, but I can picture it in my mind. But there's another one that has kind of a a jetty, so to speak, or a, a kind of a, an addendum built onto it as a hallway. And of course, my spite house in the novel has something very similar to that. And it is a very important place in the novel is the uh, added hallway, the floating hallway. And so and there's they had to build it that way. And it's literally kind of hanging over another house that's in front of it or another structure that's in front of it. And so, yeah, just like you said, there's codes, there's all these limitations and just various setbacks that they could be facing and that they're determined to overcome in order to, they're, they're, I mean, it is, you mentioned the, uh, so many people have pointed this out. And I guess in this conversation, the first time I've kind of thought of the, there's a way to think of, it, I guess, as a ingenuity could be admired. Mm-hmm maybe in the determination, yeah. you know, yeah. just, just uh, th- that never say die, never quit attitude I know. of, you know, I'm going to construct this no matter what. I don't care how thin the space is. If I have to make my house a little crooked, you know, whatever I've got to do, I'm going to build this no matter what. And I'm going to uh-huh. see it through to the end and be as creative as possible to get it done. Maybe there's something admirable there. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I bet probably some of the weirdest elements of a spite house have been the result of having to adapt to a building code. Like they're like, no, 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 you can't do this because of code, blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, I'll just do this weird thing that's never been done before, but I'll still be up to code. And they'll be like, oh, you son yeah. of a bitch. Yeah, exactly. And they'll, they'll be saying, we don't have a rule for this because we yeah. would have never thought somebody yeah. would, would go this route. Normally mm. people hear about this and say, okay, I guess I can't build it. And instead you decided, okay well if i can't do that i'll figure it out but i'm still going to build this thing oh. you know it's the necessity the mother of invention well mm-hmm. maybe spite yeah. also so at least the auntie of invention or something <laughs> <laughs> the pissed off uncle yeah exactly <laughs>
Well, the protagonist, Eric, is a man that is doing whatever it takes to keep his daughter safe, which is something I think any reader can passionately get behind. And in the beginning, like we've been kind of alluding to, you resort to a lot of passive obfuscation to keep details of the story from being revealed. So if the narrative hadn't been him trying to protect his daughters and it just involved him or him and his wife or a brother or something like that, do you think the reader would have been able to figure out those details if they weren't so emotionally invested in the well-being of Dessa and Stacy? And if so, did you plot the story that way for that very reason? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just kind of keeping in mind the little bit of the Kansas City shuffle make them look one way, mm. you're really doing something else kind of aspect of it. Storytelling, especially mystery storytelling, it's a little bit of a con game. And the story definitely has a lot of mystery components to it. And whether it's unreliable narrators, withholding information, all kinds of different tricks have been used by mystery authors through the years to make sure that you're saving some information for later. And you're keeping in mind, okay, if I can get somebody emotionally invested, for instance, with Eric and Des and Stacy. I can get them emotionally invested in Eric's desire to keep his daughter safe. They're probably going to ask fewer questions, like you mentioned. So there are certain things that I can keep close to the vest, mm -hmm. obfuscate, that I don't think, or I was hopeful, and I feel like it was successful. And oh, of course, yeah. your mileage may vary, but <laughs> uh, I was hopeful. <laughs> thank, thank you. I appreciate that. But yeah, I was hopeful that people would be so locked in on a certain amount of presuming good faith. This guy wants to keep his daughter safe. Whatever suspicion they might have, I think, would be then directed toward, okay, whatever he's hiding maybe has something to do with twists that you're more familiar with, maybe. And so I kind of anticipate that as well. You're emotionally invested, but also you may be looking for a twist. And I, I don't even want to say what those are now, I guess, because then I, I guess it would <laughs> kind of anti-spoil the story to a certain degree. You know, if I, if yeah. I say, like, you're looking for these twists that I'm not going to use, then you can check that off the list now if you haven't read it yet. And say, okay, it's not this twist and move mm -hmm. on to the next thing. But there are certain, I think, more common revelations that maybe appear in certain stories that I still really enjoy, obviously. I'm not knocking those at all, but I was anticipating people reading some of this information and thinking, okay, if there's going to be a curveball, this is where it's going to be headed. This is what it's going to involve. And because they're emotionally invested, A, they're either presuming good faith or B, anticipating a specific type of turn surrounding that emotion. And if it was just him and his brother, as you mentioned, or him and his wife on the run, or if it was just himself, I think that you wouldn't have the same emotional connection. And so I would have to tell the story in a different way. If I wanted to keep kind of dragging people along for the mystery until the point that I want to reveal it, I would have to definitely try some alternatives to the approach that I took. Because you wouldn't be able to pull the same kind of uh, look over here, pretend that you're giving them this information when really this is a red herring and go elsewhere with it. I would have definitely taken a different approach. And so I plotted it specifically with the thought in mind that people are hopefully going to trust Eric to a certain degree. And even because Des is such a prominent character, trust his oldest daughter as well, his older daughter as well. And so therefore not be looking for some of the things that I'm keeping in my back pocket hmm. until a little later. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned unreliable narrator. I was thinking more along the lines of like, and I don't know if this is actually a word, but omniscient omissive. Yeah, yes. <laughs> like he knows what's going on. He's just not letting you know everything that's going on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, I mean, kind of the opposite. I know Stephen King's done this pretty effectively, and I've seen other writers do it sometimes, I feel like too often, but kind of the same thing. Instead of 
omniscient, but they're omitting anything omniscient. And then they're telling you something that even the characters don't know. That's not even going to happen until chapters down the road. Mm-hmm. And so like, I think of like Pet Cemetery when there's like the classic in a very grim way mm-hmm. line where he reveals that the boy, the little kid, Gage, he's only got so much longer to live. And he says this well before the accident that is actually going to take place does in fact take place. And, you know, you're reading Pet Cemetery, you know, something horrible is going to happen. Obviously, it's a horror story and they've established it. But still, like this omniscient narrator tells this information that now you're just waiting for when is this going to happen? It will be like an angel coming down and telling you one day, OK, you know, make sure all your affairs are in order by 2033 and then just leaving. And you're like, what <laughs> What the hell is going to happen on 2033? I just, you know, just try to make sure all your debts are paid up. Don't leave anything bad for your family or anything like that. And uh, we'll reconvene then which is its own way of kind of, okay, well, now I've just planted a different kind of mystery Mm. on your lap. So there's all these different kind of tactics that you can use. That's part of the fun of writing a mystery, I think. There's all these different ways of doing it and manipulating information. You're kind of getting to be a little bit of a con man. You know you're manipulating information. You know you're either withholding something, you're sharing exactly what you want to share, even if you have the omniscient narrator or whatever it is that you want to employ. You know that you're either revealing certain things specifically or withholding certain things specifically for an exact reason. And you're hoping to see, is this going to be effective in the way that you deliver the information? Hmm. Well, in the character construction and hierarchy, I liked how you put Dessa right at the arbitrary line of technically being an adult, but still being young enough that you kind of still viewed her as a child. So she was in this gray area as opposed to Stacy, who definitely was just a child. And I wanted to know, was her character created before or after Stacy? And what were the elements of the plot that you felt that Dessa's character fulfilled? Great question. She came into existence shortly after Stacy, but I knew I wanted to have kind of that buffer in between the father who's desperate to do anything, the young daughter he's protecting, who's completely unaware of everything. And in a way, even when you're questioning some of the decisions that Eric makes, you know, certain decisions he makes, just the idea of wanting to even try to live in this allegedly haunted house and bring (laughs) his daughters there and do this for money. Is this a smart thing to do? Des was there to fulfill the role of the person that you can always kind of feel is not keeping any secrets, even though she does in her own way have some secrets she's keeping, but you don't really feel like she's going to mislead you or let you down. Hmm. And just this kind of reliable character, which, you know, big sister, she's the one, and this is purposeful. When we open the story, there's no secret here. Eric is doing research, right? He's kind of having to do a little bit of the, in my family, the way we kind of grew up a lot of the time, you know, the father figures kind of have to think about breadwinning and practical matters a little bit more. Mm. And then I grew up with older siblings and cousins and such that sometimes would tend more to, hey, do you want to go to the park and play some ball or something and kind of some of these more little relatable activities. Mm. And so we open the story the first couple of chapters with Eric doing the research and he's not even in the room, even though his entire world is Des and Stacy. He's in the hotel or motel office, quote unquote, so to speak, the little tiny closet that they have with a little computer. Mm -hmm. And he's doing the research to see where he can get his next job. And then Des is the one who's saying, you know what? Do you want to go get pancakes? That's your favorite food. And so the emotional attachment that you get there from her with Stacy, that's deliberate. And that's what she's there to immediately fulfill is this idea of Stacy's got big sis, even if dad is distracted by wondering so much about the future Mm -hmm. and some of the secrets and the reason they're fugitives and all these different things he's got going on, Stacy can always count on big sis to just kind of keep things at a level where Stacy is more easily able to accept that 
there's a reason we're on the run. There's a reason we had to leave home, even though she's not really aware of what's going on. She doesn't question it as much. She feels like it's a cool little trip, adventure, vacation, mm -hmm. because she's got desk there every once in a while saying, even though the budget's maybe running a little tight, I've got a little extra money because I've been doing some things independently. Let's go get some pancakes. You can even get your favorite toppings and stuff. And that's deliberately done there to establish kind of what she fulfills as a character to a certain degree early in the novel. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Stacy was kind of the tiny star of the show. <laughs> she was, in my opinion, the most lovable character and had nothing but redeeming qualities. But also, compared to the other characters, I feel like she had the scariest scenes in the book. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to figure it out, you know, when it came to her scenes, what are the elements of the setting and tone of a story that have to be manipulated to make something that's inherently pleasant, like children playing together or a child's laughter, terrifying? And <laughs> how do they have to be manipulated to achieve that effect? Man, another great question. It makes me think of, this is a silly thing for me to think of, I don't know why, but it, there's an old Simpsons gag mm -hmm. where uh, Marge mentions that she's creeped out by the fact that Bart is starting to fly his kite at night. And she says, there's something so unwholesome about flying a kite at night. <laughs> and then she opens the window and there he is. And she's right. It's so yeah. bizarre. Yeah. It's, you know, like, I mean, on the surface, there really shouldn't be anything really like other than, you know, maybe it's past bedtime or whatever, but there's mm -hmm. nothing necessarily sinister yeah. about flying a kite at night. And yet if I was like out walking down the street at night, walking my dog, and there was like a five-year-old at the end of the street, flying their kite and uh -huh. it was like 10 at night here in San Antonio or something. I'd be worried for the kid. Maybe I'd try to see if they're okay, but I would definitely call my spouse first and Hey, look, I'm about to talk to this kid that's <laughs> flying their kite at 10 o'clock. So if I go missing, this is the corner I was on. This is what happened. And a lot of manipulating that a uh, great question again, man. I love that question. And a lot of manipulating that to make it scarier, something that should be relatively innocent and wholesome in some of the things that she does. And then you, you start to realize there's something here that even she's not fully understanding why she's creepy. So you're manipulating it in the sense of just something being a little bit out of place is the kite flying at night. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is just set it askew a little bit and that can turn it from innocent to creepy. And a lot of the time in horror fiction, especially there's kids that are very conscious of being evil and that can be a lot of fun to write, but I think it tends to be a little bit more unsettling when the kids also seem unaware. Mm. And so Stacy's control of her innocence in the face of also being part of some frightening things, that's part of what you do to manipulate that and twist it into something terrifying, hopefully, as well. Early on, one of my favorite lines in the book and one of the creepier lines when innocently, you know, the house is very thin and they're observing that and they're talking about it over the table at the diner. And she, at the end of the chapter, says, I figured out why the house is so skinny, mm -hmm. it hasn't had enough to eat. <laughs> and so, you know, there's a lot of great horror fiction that I'm following in the footsteps of pioneers preceding me about hungry houses, hungry haunted houses. That's kind of a mm -hmm. standard trope, but I don't say that in a negative way because I love it every single time it shows up. And the Spite House eventually, I mean, I don't think it's a spoiler very much to say. It's very much a haunted house story and the idea of going inside and never getting out and kind of quote unquote being swallowed up by the house comes into play. And I think that that's an observation on her part. That's just a stupid little joke a kid makes. And it's kind of, you know, one of those things that where sometimes a kid can make an observation that they're not even aware that they're making it that can mm -hmm. really freak you out if you're like yeah. paying attention to what they've actually said. 
Yeah. 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 And even your example of Bart flying a kite or just an actual human child flying a kite. To me, I don't know if you would agree with me or not, but to me, if he was flying it with another little friend, it would be less terrifying. Yes, absolutely. But why is that? I, I, you, you make a great up. <laughs> I have no idea right. why. Totally. That makes yeah, that's no a great sense. observation. It doesn't make any sense. And yet there's something about it. It's not just that he's flying it at night. He's alone. Yeah. Something about him being alone and. Yeah, it just makes you less trustful of what you're seeing there. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Man, that's a great, and, and I have no idea why, but you're absolutely right. If you saw somebody else there, if it was a second kid, it would be like, okay, well, maybe it's, they're part of something. You would think it would be doubly creepy, but it's not yeah, for some reason. It's not. Like, immediately I'm sitting there thinking, like, my mind would go to, like, maybe this is some kind of weird Boy Scout, like, mm-hmm. new badge that they've got that I'm not aware of. Their science experiment. I don't know. Something about having the other kid there would make me just give them more benefit of the doubt. Maybe two kids interacting with each other makes them more human. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if he's by himself, he's like, oh, there's something a little otherworldly about this kid. Yeah. You know, I don't know. There's something off here. Why is he off by himself flying yeah. a kite at night? It just reinforces his, I don't know. And, you know, we probably shouldn't think that. Who knows? Maybe he's like just more imaginative and creative and, <laughs> you know, there's a brilliant mind in there. But I'll still be a little bit worried if I saw that. Yeah, I mean, how does he see power lines? He's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, oh, man. Well, Eunice is a character that produces a lot of conflicting emotions. She's physically old and frail, but mentally sharp and dangerous and comes from old money and a generational curse. So did her character have a basis on any real person and if so, who? And if not, was she based on a particular character archetype or trope? She's not based on a single individual person. She is a little bit of a mixture, though, of the inherited curse, the Winchester mansion, the famous mansion in California that is built very strangely as well on the interior with stairs that lead nowhere and hallways that kind of just trail off into a weird dead end doors that open into nothing. And the old story that was attached to that, which is probably, again, apocryphal. I read an article about how that's probably made up. But there was the old story that the reason why it was because the last surviving heiress of the Winchester fortune, the Winchester rifle fortune, was afraid that all people who had been killed by a Winchester rifle, all their ghosts, would try to get her in her house. So she was trying mm. to create a maze, basically, in the house that would confuse the ghosts so they couldn't find her. Wow. Which is fascinating. So there's that (laughs) element of that with Eunice where she's inherited this curse and she's trying to be proactive in some way with her immense wealth about trying to stave it off. And then the other story that was still in my mind from when I was a kid and I try to work it into as much as I can, any slight reference or even if it's just for myself that I can think of. There's a castle in Scotland that's supposed to be the most haunted castle in Scotland called Glam's Castle. And one of the many, many, many ghost stories, supernatural happenings, all kind of various things that are supposed to be attached to it is that the keepers of the castle, the royals or the nobles, I guess, who own the castle for years through generations, they had inherited a curse. And from what I'd read, you didn't even know what the curse was. But the latest living heir, whenever they would turn 21, would be told the curse. And repeatedly, once they learned about it, they would go from being happy and enjoying their nobility and all the spoils of being extremely wealthy to becoming very paranoid and fearful and sullen to the extent that the streak was broken, apparently. Again, I read this ages ago, so who knows how accurate any of this ever was. <laughs> but this was the legend. Mm. The streak was broken when one heir just told the people who are going to tell him next, I just don't want to know. Just don't tell me. I've seen this happen through the generations to everybody who's preceded me. 
And I've heard the stories, you know, you go from being extremely happy and loving life to being terrified and depressed because of this curse that has to be told to you when you're 21. Don't tell me. <laughs> um, and so that's always fascinated me too. the idea of the curse in Eunice has some of that as well, where she learns that a certain things at a certain age that really reshapes her entire outlook and demeanor on life and makes her focused and fearful on just trying to do whatever she can to prevent this curse from doing exactly what she's most afraid of and taking over and destroying her life. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things I noticed about the story is that with the exception of Eunice's dead ancestors, none of the main characters seem to be inherently evil. They were all just kind of reacting to unfortunate situations, not necessarily in a good way, but, you know, they weren't just evil for the sake of being evil. So what emotional response were you attempting to evoke in the reader with this measure? I definitely wanted people to question, how would you respond in these scenarios? Horror comes in a lot of different flavors, and I love a lot of horror where there's aggressively, blatantly evil people. Freddy Krueger is just completely irredeemable and is one of the most captivating characters, nonetheless, in horror history. And I would argue Hannibal Lecter, despite all of his many charms and his education and wit and whatnot, is still somebody you'd rather not have mm -hmm. exist in the real world. But I wanted you to wonder, would there be a net positive or negative to having this person in the real world in these circumstances? Whose side would I be on or would I be more sympathetic to one person or the other based on these situations? I just wanted people to really just question. I wanted an emotional response and investment, but I also wanted people to question what they think they know and what they think they would do in impossible to know circumstances for, I would imagine, most of us. I don't think most of us are ever going to end up in a circumstance where we're, uh, I hope whoever's listening, I hope your family isn't cursed um, <laughs> and that you never have to live in a spite house and a haunted house and figure out what to do about that situation if the house is trying to swallow you up. But nonetheless, always I, rent. I feel like yeah, always rent, you know, at least get a clause in the lease too. like, hey, if, I, if there's anything strange that happens, if I see any kind of spirits walking the night, you know, that invalidates the lease. Yeah. Um, so I wanted people to, you know, the classic, what would you do in this situation? That's always fun when you get that kind of story, I think. And it's easier to do that or easier, I think, to write a story like that if you create characters where there's at least some ambiguity, even like you said, with Eunice, she's got a dangerous mind. She's very much the antagonist, but there is an element to her where she's not purely evil. And so mm -hmm. it would, I hope, make people wonder, what would I do in this scenario if I was a person cursed and I had this much money available to me? How would I behave and what would I do differently versus mm -hmm. what she did? And what would I do the same versus what she did? Mm -hmm. Well, how long did it take you to write The Spite House, and what did you do to celebrate its release? <laughs> Not, oh, it, man. That wasn't on social media. What did you really do to celebrate its release? <laughs> <laughs> I, what I really did to celebrate... Well, all right, so let's, let's unpack a lot of that. Man, great question. Um, so I, uh, it took me about two years off and on writing because I had some competing projects. You know, I'm a debut author. I was trying to figure out what's going to be the one. You're always wondering what's going to be the one that's going to really take off. And I had a couple of different ideas that I thought maybe I should be going here or there. Once I actually got locked in, I was about halfway through. Once I really just locked in, had some things kind of crop up in my life that really motivated me to say, okay, finish this. And that happened right at the end of October of 2019. And then from October 2019 to January 2019, I finished basically the other half of the book. So once I actually got rolling with it, it flew by. 
So you finished it right to, before COVID? Right before. It was, oh, it was okay. January of 2020, right before right. COVID, that I uh, finished it. Didn't immediately start sending it out to agents, right? You got to rewrite and rewrite and mm. all the other stuff and clean it up. So by the time I started sending it out to agents, COVID had shut down the United States and, and <laughs> you know, much of the rest of the world. Yeah. It was very... It was a very strange time in my life. I mean, it was like also my best year as a writer by far. And I, I'd sold some <laughs> short stories that were like my biggest sales of my aspiring short story career. And it seemed like every time I'd get a sale or I want to announce it, like some new horrible statistic or something was happening. Mm. It was like, well, I'm just going to sit on this good news for about Everybody's a week or two. pissing on my parade. It's, it's, you know, it. <laughs> it's very weird. And it's like, you don't want to feel like so selfish, like, oh, this mm. is all about me. Right. You know, mm. but at the same time, it was consistently happening. To the extent that when I got the book deal, speaking of celebrating the book release and everything else, I didn't celebrate the book deal because I mean, you're a fellow Texan. I got the offer in 2021 during the week of the huge snowstorm. Mm. And so mm. again, God, um, not, <laughs> it, it was, it was, I was really, you know, and, and I'm, I write supernatural horror fiction and such. So I was like, am I kind of weird? omen like every time something good is happening to me something uh, catastrophic seems to be happening in the world this is going to be weird this is like a twilight zone episode it's like a story around. idea you can work with it, <laughs> it totally is it was it was super bizarre and so yeah sure enough that very same week was when i got my offer and then to celebrate the release i was busy man you know book tour i was extremely fortunate to be doing a lot of travel for that so i didn't actually do any kind of partying or anything until i got back and i've got some buddies here locally that had been on my case about it for a while. They were like, when are we going to party, man? Like, when are we going to celebrate this? You're, you're an author. Like, this is crazy. You've been working at that. I'm 43 years old. I've been trying to write since I was 18. Breakthrough. And they're like, you know, this is 25 years in the making, man. When are we going to really party up? And so I actually, it's funny you mentioned the social media because I just put that up today because uh, one of my buddies does video promotion and he happened to be at the party. So we had a private event and I put up a little clip of it, had some other authors there, a lot of friends and loved ones. And it was a good time. But that's how we ended up finally fully celebrating that. And uh, I can't really show you here without picking up my computer and taking around the room. Oh, but, yeah. Like what I, my first big purchase to celebrate once I actually got my advance in was just in my office. I've got a bunch of very scary artwork that I'd had my eye on for a while. Mm. And right above my computer, I've got kind of a black and white mural of images from the famous scary stories to tell in the dark book mm -hmm. series. Yeah. which was a huge influence on me as a kid. And I come in every day and I get to see that and just feel like, man, I can't believe the kid that was eight years old or whatever it was when I, when I first started reading these crazy <laughs> stories. Now yeah. I get to look up at this and see all the, the horrific images that scarred my youth and uh, <laughs> upset my parents and turned into, <laughs> into this success. Very nice. Well, you mentioned you've been writing since the age of 18. You mentioned some short stories. It's obvious from The Spite House that you have a very unique voice. So how long did it take you to kind of find your literary voice? And how did you know when you'd actually found it? It took a while. It definitely took a while. Like I said, I started when I was 18. I didn't sell anything substantially at all until about 2006. That goes from like 1997 to 2006. So that's mm -hmm. almost 10 years in and of itself. Finding my literary voice, I think it took me, I mean, even a little bit longer after the first sales. I don't really feel like I got super comfortable in my voice until a little bit after that. So it took me about, I'd say, 10 to 12 years to find it and really feel confident in it. And how I knew was when I just kind of looked and realized that I was embracing certain influences 
you know, I grew up in the hip hop generation and I wanted to be a rapper before I wanted to, <laughs> well, not really. I wanted to be a storyteller before I wanted to be a rapper. I wrote my first short stories as a kid when I was in fourth or fifth grade. Wanting to be a rapper took over my life when I was like in seventh grade. Since then, even to this day, still else just privately for myself, I just write verses. And so it did influence my voice in the sense of you use different metaphors and similes and wordplay and alliteration and all these different things when you're trying to write something for music. And I realized that I needed to just lean into that mm -hmm. a lot more than I had previously. Whereas before I tried to kind of keep them separate, the idea of like, okay, this is when I'm writing for a song I want to do. And this is when I'm writing for a book. And then I wrote something and somebody commented, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but somebody commented that I'd used a metaphor that they thought, man, this is just so unusual. This is so unique. You just have such a different style. And I looked at it and I thought, this is like the kind of thing I would write for a rap verse. And I'm like very like rock him, old school, like density of lyricism and stuff like that with my rap style. And I was like, this is something I would have written for that mm -hmm. instead of, you know, I don't know how it snuck into my story here. But then I got that first compliment. I thought, well, I need to embrace this a little bit better. So there's like a lot of alliteration. I try to restrain myself, but there's a bit of alliteration in the spite house. You know, I try to keep it to two words, three words, absolute max. Mm -hmm. um, you've listened, you mentioned the podcast. I'll indulge way more on the podcast because that's why I get to just really, <laughs> who cares? Mm -hmm. And so I'll see sometimes and I'll just challenge myself. Can I really just say like five words that start with a T in a row before anybody starts realizing, <laughs> wait, this feels intentional. So that's when I realized oh, I can just do this and kind of indulge myself in both arenas. And then as obviously prose writing took over my life a lot more than my aspirations as a rapper, that's when I really just thought, well, I can still apply these years and years and years and God knows how many notebooks mm -hmm. that I devoted to this one pursuit to something else. And then at the same time, combining it with my literary influences, Walter Mosley, huge influence on me. And I'd say Elmore Leonard in terms of prose styling, and they helped influence my voice. And then Tanana Du, who was a huge influence on me, one of my kind of literary heroes, when I read her stories, and I also have a very sentimental side, and she can write horror with such feeling. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is my lane. I got to embrace that too, which, you know, sometimes as a man, <laughs> we can be in denial about certain things um you know kind of kind of foolishly we might cry over our favorite team winning a, a championship <laughs> but but uh deny it in other arenas i grew up also really loving like hong kong action movies and they conversely it's very masculine to just embrace the sentiment in like you know you're my brother and you know we're gonna die together and hold hands as we like then go have a shootout or something you know like just a very mm -hmm. very naked emotion that they have with that and realizing, oh, I can kind of employ some of that to a reasonable degree with my writing. And that's all what combined to let me know I've found my voice when I've realized I accepted those things. Yeah, when you were talking about rap, I mean, rap is a form of poetry. So it's kind of akin to prose, kind of like a bridge, I guess you would say. Yeah, yeah for sure. And I spent years in denial about anything close to that. I had them very siloed mm. in my mind. Okay, I've got my notebooks. I'm writing one thing. I'm in front of my computer, I'm writing an entirely separate thing, and I need to get out of my one headspace to write the other. And when I realized that, you know, one can complement the other instead, that went a long way for me to find my voice. Yeah. Well, do your friends and family read your work? And if so, who is your biggest fan? Oh, man. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Not as much. Friends. I've got some friends that are working through it. <laughs> <laughs> I just talked to one of my friends. It's hard to say who's my biggest 
fan because they've all been extraordinarily supportive, those who have read. And even those who haven't read, a lot of them have bought a book, which is beautiful, but also just kind of funny to me because I've got, <laughs> I'm also kind of sitting on a bunch of free books. And, you know, they give you as part of the, the, the book deal. It's like, oh, here's something to give to your family and friends. And, uh, you know, every time I try to give it to like mom, aunt, whoever, they're like, no, I'm going to support you. I want to buy it. And I'm like, well, I appreciate that, but I'm going to be sitting on like 43 <laughs> books at a certain point. I got to figure out what to do with this. They're, oh, yeah, they're I, all... Yeah. I guess they're marked in a fashion where they're, it says not for sale or something like that. No, no, no. I've got like just the regular books. Oh, okay. so like these are, I've got those downstairs in my room right now. <laughs> <laughs> a, a full box and a half. I've managed to give a few away, but not nearly as many. You know, good problem to have, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, some people, it's not their speed. So it made me laugh when you first asked the question, because especially on the family side, I know that some family members, they're like, okay, I knew you'd always write stuff like this. Mm-hmm. But, uh, <laughs> you know, they're probably wondering if I had to actually write, you know, ghost stories and scary stuff <laughs> instead of maybe something a little bit more uplifting and lighthearted. Yeah. But, you know, Shirley Jackson once got a letter from her mom. Like, why don't you write something a little bit more uplifting <laughs> once in a while? <laughs> so you're in good company with that. That doesn't mean they don't love you. I think some of that is like, hey, are you OK? Why, why, yeah. why is this? Why is this what you write? I'm going to shout out my cousin, Devin. I'm trying to think of who I'd say is my biggest fan. My cousin, Devin, uh-huh. who's been like just my biggest fan in everything in life mm. since we were kids. So she's probably my biggest fan, I'd say. Okay. You know, you're talking about your physical inventory of books. You know, I mean, you do have a website, right? You could <laughs> you could sign every single one of those, and that would be the limited run autograph copies. I'm just saying. Oh, just a I, suggestion. I know. Everybody tells me, like, you know, you're supposed to do, like, giveaways. And I mean, there's a lot of better authors that are so much better at self-promotion. Mm-hmm. I need to take a page from, like, a Gabino Iglesias, also, you know, fellow horror author. Mm-hmm. And uh, every time I look at his Twitter and stuff, and Cena Palayo is another. Just a lot of people that I look at and admire their, not just their work, because they're fantastic authors, but also I'm like, man, they're really good at, like, self-promoting mm-hmm. and not in a annoying way, just in a really savvy yeah. way. And meanwhile, literally my persona, I'm the kind of person who I've walked past groups of friends and people I know at work because they're already in a conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't want to interrupt your conversation. Yeah. And then later on, they'll be like, dude, just walk past while saying hi. And I'm like, well, you guys were, t- it's not like I was like upset. <laughs> like, I'm uh-huh. just not going to interrupt your conversation. They're like, we know you, you're okay. Like, yeah. It's, it's not a big deal. And I'm like, ah, it's rude. To, you know, so I'm perpetually in the mind state of like, feel like I'm interrupting everybody's life by doing anything. So announcing a giveaway, just the idea of it makes me yeah. shrink or like, you know, Hey, I've got these copies signed of the book on my website. Like I know I'm supposed to do that. You're absolutely right. I'm supposed to. If my agent heard you say that, he'd like send you a thank you card <laughs> when, <laughs> well, no, he, when he hears this. Yeah, no, it's easy for me to tell you that. But if you told me something like, you know, <laughs> you could do this to promote your podcast, I'd be the same way. I'd be like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to make everybody all sketchy. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're kindred in that regard. Are, yeah. are we introverts? But, I'm an introvert. Is that what it is? Are I'm you an introvert. I'm naturally much more introverted mm-hmm. because of my professional career. Previously, I was a corporate trainer and mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at doing presentations. And I discovered that in my career. So I've developed a kind of extrovert persona mm-hmm. because like as a professional, I had to, you can't be an introverted new hire trainer. Yeah. Hey guys, uh, welcome to the company. <laughs> Don't say anything to me though. <laughs> I'll be in the corner. You, know, you gotta yeah. be not just there, but you gotta be energetic and pumped mm-hmm. up and make them feel wonderful about being part of the company. And so I developed that while trying to, you know, also you want to be sincere. People can read right through your insincerity. It's worse to be fake. 
So I developed the, I say persona, but it's just kind of the elements of myself that I felt like could work as an extrovert. I decided, okay, we're just going to magnify that so that this is genuinely me. But if you had like your personal settings, like an equalizer board, I'm picturing Mm -hmm. and you know, like when somebody's (laughs) mixing some music or something, Uh it's like, all right, we're going to just turn down all the treble and you know, whatever, and amp up the bass and amp up, you know, I'm like, I'm just doing a mixer on my, (laughs) my life. Sometimes (laughs) it's like, all right, we're going to turn down all the introvert (laughs) settings. We're going to turn up all the extrovert settings. But if, we if you get leave this it dialed like just, in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if I hit the default button and turn everything back up, the introvert settings mm-hmm. definitely outweigh the extrovert settings on the default setting. So that's where I'm at, at least, you know, my complicated way of looking at myself. I'm going to look into AI avatars and I'll let you know what I find out. <laughs> we can just produce these alter egos of ourselves. <laughs> like, that's right. Yeah. It's not even us, just some, some extrovert just a, person. My extrovert that I can send out into the world, my mm. extrovert avatar when I need to do certain things, for Indeed. sure. Indeed. I guarantee you it exists. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, what is your writing medium and atmosphere? Am I looking at you in the... You mentioned your art that you got. Is that your uh, cultivated cocoon for writing. <laughs> yeah, I've got across every wall almost paintings or, you know, art pieces that kind of set the mood for it. Get in front of my computer. I've got a TV behind me on the one wall. That's more window than wall space. And I'll just put on shutter sometimes. Yeah. And just have it running behind me while I'm typing away. And, you know, just look back every once in a while and see what's going on there. And I relatively recently adopted a writing pattern of, I try to hit a certain word count a day, but I'm, I'm trying to break it out into chunks. So it helps to have something around you that serves as a temporary distraction after you hit this benchmark, turn around, see what's playing on Shutter now, mm-hmm. watch a little bit of that for 30 minutes or so before you get back to it. And I've been able to be more productive that way instead of just trying to sit down and focus for straight eight-hour workday, so to speak. More frequent kind of mental breaks have really helped me become a lot more productive than I would have anticipated. Yeah, staring at a screen is hard on your eyes and the focus. If you take little breaks here and there, it does, at least I believe it, lets you endure a little longer. Yeah, um, I think there's... If you if you were trying to go straight through, you just peter out pretty quick. <laughs> and it's, it's so... It's kind of weird for me to like say that. And every time I say it, I think, man, like this really... I should have known that long, you know, much longer ago. <laughs> take pretty frequent breaks. I did that for my new hires when I would train them, even when I was in corporate America. But I think there's like an element of a sort of, for me at least, and I don't say this, I don't want to put this on any other author because I think we all work really hard. I know for me, when I first started like saying, okay, this is going to be my career now. I'm in position to do this. There's an element of imposter syndrome in the sense of, do I even have a real job anymore? (laughs) You know, like this is what's paying me and this is my livelihood and everything. So like to compensate for that, it's like, okay, I need to sit down and write, even if it's just staring at my computer and begging words to come out, even when they're not coming out right now, but I can't get up and take a break because I need to treat this more like a job and I need to overdo it to a certain degree because I feel almost guilty about this being a job. And I'm kind of, I don't want anybody to walk in and feel like this guy's an imposter. He doesn't have a real job. He's over here, like not really working after all. You're worse than your previous boss. <laughs> you, you work for yourself, but you're worse than the guy that you used to work for. <laughs> I am 10,000%. Shout out to my previous boss. I am. If they listen to this, I could definitely say 
I am 10,000% worse on myself than they were <laughs> because they were actually very accommodating in a lot of ways uh, uh, when all the stuff with the book started happening. So, yeah. So is there anything that you do outside of reading that you feel makes you a better writer? Oh, man. Great question. Outside of reading, outside of absorbing, you know, any kind of fiction. So I watch a lot of movies, obviously. A lot of it is just really trying to engage with and talk to people, which is going back to our conversation earlier is very interesting because I, I am much more naturally introverted, but I'm also very curious about people. And so I think that that's helped me a lot because I want to hear everybody's stories because everybody's got a, a kind of a different story to tell. And I want to hear what your best stories are. Yeah. And that's one of the things I've been able to even magnify or build up on in my recent, you know, getting the opportunity to travel for the book. I just got back from the Tucson book festival and I've got a great story that I can't wait to use. I've still got the guy's uh, phone number. One of the people that was there to drive me to the festival. You, know, you talk to Uber drivers, you talk to different drivers, you talk to different people. And I used to be very much the person that's like, eh, don't talk to me. I just want to sit in the back and <laughs> get to my destination. But, you know, I kind of came out of my show a lot more. And you talk to people, you find out different professions they have. They give you tidbits here. You find out where they're from. They give you a little bit more. And so that helps really, I think, flesh out the world of your story because it's all write what you know is the mantra and that's the ideal. But if you want to set a story apart from where you live, you might not always have the opportunity to go visit different places and talk to the exact people that live there all the time. But you can pick up little bits and pieces if you live someplace where you can actually have a conversation with people. Mm -hmm. Or if you can just, you know, nowadays, the great advantage of it is that you can go online and find a vlog for just about anybody who lives almost anywhere in the world. And you can find information, you know, you can find somebody who just lives in Alaska, which I do that from time to time. Mm -hmm. Just, oh, you know, top 10 things I love about living in Juneau or <laughs> something. And I'm just curious, okay, what, what are your top things? And you start picking up on little information here and things that, you know, and I write it down. Okay, this would be fun for a story. This would be interesting just for a character to have this kind of quirk. And it's not necessarily anything that's going to be like the dominant element of a story. It's not even necessarily going to be a side story. But if it's a side character, helps flesh them out, make them feel like a real person as opposed to just somebody you're throwing into your story just to kind of get the plot moving from point A to point B. So yeah, I just talked to a guy. I can't wait to use it. I got to just get his permission. <laughs> but I talked to a guy in, in Tucson, but he's a snowbird and he was coming from Canada. He was in the Vancouver Island area. And he was just telling me some fascinating things that I would have never known about Canada and certainly not specifically about Vancouver Island. And somewhat morbid, but very interesting and just really fascinating to me. And I just thought this would make for a great way to flesh out a character in a story for them to be able to speak to this and flesh out a destination, a place in a story. And so I'm, I'm going to, when I get to that story, I want to make sure I text him and say, Hey, you don't mind me using this that I've picked up from our conversation. I don't think he would at all, but I do a lot of that. I try to do a lot of picking up on people's conversations, being present in the moment and really trying to lock in on what's going to make a story that much more interesting if you can incorporate those human touches. And then, of course, I mean, everything else creatively, like art or just go to museums and, you know, all the other technically not reading, but adjacent, I feel, stuff, just absorbing any kind of creative influence. Okay. Well, Tell me about your podcast, Healthy Fears, which not only has great high quality production, but again, just like your book, a highly unique premise. 
Um, just came up with this idea. Again, I mentioned Alien is my favorite horror movie. Mm-hmm. I grew up watching Aliens a lot, and I was always fascinated by the scene where Newt and Ripley are trapped by the face hugger in the room. And Newt tells Ripley, I'm scared. And Ripley answers, me too, mm. as opposed to trying to hide her fear. And it's always had me think about and lock in on when those moments show up in a movie where characters admit to being scared. Predator, Billy admits he's afraid. I'm, I'm scared, sir. Mm-hmm. Something out there is hunting us and it's not human. And then from the 1950s, the original adaptation of The Thing, there's a scientist who wants to just study the alien and capture it alive or whatever. And the military man who's there, who's the hero, is more like, no, this thing's a threat. We've got to subdue it and maybe kill it. Mm-hmm. And the scientist says, you're scared. You're only saying this because you're scared. And there's a, a moment where he turns around and he says, yes, I am scared. You know, I'm scared of what it will do if it escapes and who it might hurt next. And so anytime I would hear that, I would just think maybe fear is not always such a bad thing. It gets portrayed most of the time in fiction as, oh, you're afraid. And that's going to be a hindrance to maybe trying to overcome the situation. And maybe recognizing that you're afraid of something is actually what you should do and then figure out how to overcome it, but not necessarily deny even that you're afraid at all. And of course, from what I've read, at least scientifically, fear is there as a survival tactic. Mm -hmm. You know, we're we're all here. There's an episode where I talk about we're all probably here literally because at some point in our ancestry, somebody was scared enough to do something that saved their life Mm -hmm. and therefore saved the bloodline, right? Mm-hmm. Even if you just go back to like, we probably couldn't trace it, but there's some caveman or wild man running around the bush or something in our past or some woman who was out picking up the crops and saw a snake or a scorpion mm-hmm. or heard a wolf's howl, mm-hmm. something, heard a growl in the dark and it was like, I'm going to turn around. <laughs> my heart's pumping faster. I need to get the hell out of here. Uh-huh. I need to save my life. And that's humanity. You know, nothing would be here. If we didn't feel some fear at some point. So the concept of the podcast is to explore those angles of fear that don't get explored as often in fiction, while also looking at times when uh, fear is maybe irrational or it is detrimental to your potential survival and trying to balance out how we identify when that takes place, when the fear is indeed healthy and maybe going to save us, when it's unhealthy and potentially going to get us killed and when it's a little bit of both. Okay. And by the way, from listening to your podcast, uh, you know, it's in a scripted form. So you're kind of focused in and following a script. If you're looking to branch out, you would do very well in voiceover. I, pre- <laughs> I, I appreciate that. I, I think you could do audiobooks and, you know, whatever else is available out there. I don't know. I've never really looked into it. One of my guests, Danny Dreadful, she does narrative fiction. She also does voiceover. I think she was the voice of a video game character. And uh, oh, that's cool. Yeah, so. yeah, that's awesome. Uh, no, I I appreciate that. I uh, I don't know if I have the discipline, but I mean, because like a, the the podcast was not always scripted. If you go back to the earliest episodes, I just had notes, and then I would just say what's on my mind. And oh, speak okay. for a while. I thought it was gonna be Dan Carlin, mm-hmm. and instead I'm a lot more. Uh, there's a podcast called You Must Remember This, and I can't think of her name right now, but it's a great podcast that talks about Hollywood history. And I leaned way more into her style. Yeah, at first I was like, yeah, Dan Carlin sounds so natural and mm-hmm. hardcore history, and he's just kind of speaking. And then every once in a while, he references whatever books in front of him. I'm going to do it like that. And then I realized the editing I had to do later. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I might as well just write this out. It's going to save me more time. Yeah. Uh, so then I started scripting it and just leaning more into that. And that actually, I thought, is really when you can kind of mark the moment from like episode, I think it's like eight 
going through the last, you know, however many episodes okay. are after that, where you can see the difference. That's when I thought the podcast got better, but it's also the discipline it requires because sitting around and just reading in front of the mic. And then every time any kind of little slip up happens, I just feel like I can't believe I did. And like, I don't be in my head about it. <laughs> and so just to be able to do it professionally, I admire professional, uh, you know, voice artists and people that read so much, like having done my little amateur version of it, because mm. I'm like, man, like every time I slip up, I feel like, all right, I got to start the whole paragraph over now because no, no, that's it's, it's going to be in my head. <laughs> Otherwise, I know they don't do that. I've looked at like YouTube clips and they're like, oh, no, you know, this is how you work around that. And I'm like, mm. yeah, I don't, I don't have the discipline for that. <laughs> oh, well, just thought I'd mention it. No, I appreciate it, though. <laughs> well, what is the life of Johnny Compton like outside of writing and podcasting? Uh, I try to go to the movies, like I say pretty routinely. I love going to the theater. I love being in the movie theater. I'm one of those. Has it recovered um, from COVID? Big crowds? I've, you know, it's funny. I was never a big crowd guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's something I absolutely have to see on opening night, sure. But unfortunately they closed it, but there used to be a theater here in San Antonio called the Bijou. They just closed it. I think last summer it was broke my heart, mm -hmm. but they would mostly show little kind of indie quiet movies mm -hmm. but then they would also show like the big blockbusters but most people in town did not realize this theater also it was well known for being like kind of the art house indie movie theater yeah they didn't realize like oh this is also going to show the latest avengers and so you'd go there and there'd be like 20 people instead of like the fully packed audience oh and i loved that yeah and so even back then i was like okay i can avoid the crowds but it has recovered i follow the box office i've always been like a little bit of a nerd about Movie finances mm -hmm. fascinate me. And so like Creed 3 just did Gangbusters opening weekend numbers. Scream 6 is what they're up to, I think, now. Oh, wow. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm, God. I'm not exactly a huge... I mean, like, I think it's awesome that it's successful. I think it's healthy for the horror genre, so I'm grateful for that. I mean, like, I loved the first Scream. Scream 2 was cool. After that, I've, I've kind of waned yeah. on the franchise. It was never really my bag. But I mean, it's as successful and thriving as it ever has been. Mm -hmm. And, you know, last year, Top Gun did super numbers. Avatar is doing great numbers. I'm always happy to see like a variety of movies doing well. You know, I'm, I'm the kind of person that I don't like to bag on the comic book movies because I grew up reading comic books. I understand the appeal of it. And I watched a lot of those when they were first coming. I was like, man, I can't believe they're actually getting Spider-Man right on the big screen. Like mm -hmm. remembering when it was, you know the TV show of Spider-Man allegedly climbing up the wall when it's very clearly like they just tilted the camera yeah, yeah. sideways. It's like, <laughs> it's amazing how gravity works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I'm definitely appreciative of it, but at the same time, it did kind of feel for a while, like, is this going to be like the only movie that's ever successful anymore is, you know, just going to be the comic book movies. And so seeing stuff that's a little bit more varied finding success, you know, you got a, a sports movie and a, horror movie doing great things and last year top gun it's kind of a classic throwback 80s adventure thrill ride with practical effects all that kind of stuff i could go on and on i love going to the movies i love movies and i love going to the movies so that is a lot of my life outside of writing and reading just going on like little weird day trips you know the reason why the spite house is set in the texas hill country partly was just me taking trips into the hill country and realizing this is a really interesting place that a lot of people even in Texas, I think are unfamiliar with, and certainly outside of Texas. I think a lot of people don't think of hilly terrain when they think of Texas at all. Mm. And so trying to go out and find different places that I think would be interesting to just visit personally. And then also I'm always looking for cool stuff to write about. So there, there's that, you know, all the standard stuff, enjoying family and friends. I love the beach. 
if I could, you know, live somewhere within reasonable driving distance, like 20 minutes or so of the coast, I would absolutely probably pick that or just about anywhere else I could live mm. because I'd love the idea of the water and the beach. If it's a warm coast and you can actually get in the water, <laughs> you know, yeah. some of those, some of those, it's like, all you're doing is going and looking at the water. Uh, I'm sure that's lovely too, but I like getting in the water. Yeah. Well, what advice would you give an aspiring writer that is having a lot of false starts where they seem to lose their way midway through the story and end up scrapping what they've written? Um, as somebody who did this a lot before I actually finished <laughs> <laughs> this novel, again, it took me 25 years. And in that time, I finished certain things, but I spent a lot of time working on novels and scrapping exactly what you're describing, scrapping stuff midway through sometimes. I mean, really deep into the book. My advice is give the book a chance, give yourself a chance, and always remember you're going to have to rewrite it anyway. And when I say rewrite it, if you're lucky, if you're successful, which I found out, I mean, I already knew I was going to have to do just for myself, probably five pass throughs. That's, you know, what I anticipate for most rewrites. If you ever, you know, get fortunate enough to like get with a publisher and they have an editor, you're going to do a lot more rewriting on top of that. <laughs> so don't get hung up on the idea of this isn't working out absolutely perfectly right now. So I need to scrap it. A lot more of it is probably valuable and viable than you're giving yourself credit for. So definitely keep going. But also some of that stuff that you think is not working, you're going to end up catching that on your own rewrites. Or if you're, like I say, if you're lucky, if you're fortunate and you get with an editor, part of the good fortune of that is that you get somebody else to look at this and say, hey, are we sure about this? Mm. <laughs> and, and so then part of that burden of like that you've been putting on yourself of, man, is this the right thing? Should I just scrap this whole thing? Because I'm not sure I'm doing this and I'm losing my confidence. You'll have somebody else there to kind of get your back and say, hey, this works. I loved it. And also... This right here, what if we try something different? And then that just opens up avenues to new ideas and new ways to approach the story and new developments. Don't self-reject. Give yourself a chance and give the story a chance. You're going to have to rewrite it a ton anyway. So, you know, don't put the burden on yourself to get it right, you know, and immediately perfect. Just do the best you can. Obviously, don't write junk, which <laughs> I'm, I'm trusting that you're not doing. <laughs> I've got faith in you that you're not writing junk, but don't also put it on yourself to think, I've got to get this. Perfect. I was just thinking of this the other day. Even when I was still aspiring, I stopped congregating as much, especially online with other aspiring writers, because I realized at a certain point, we're all just trying to figure it out. We maybe need to spend more time getting advice from people who've succeeded mm. instead of everybody who hasn't yet succeeded trying to figure it out mm. amongst each other, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. At some point, you got to get an expert's opinion on yeah. something or somebody who succeeded. Yeah. But one of the things that occurred to me is I remember you know, different kind of exercises we go through. And, you know, one of the classics people like to fall on is the first line. The first line is so important to your book. Everybody talks about that, how valuable your first line is. And I was just thinking about how freeing it is because like, you'd get bogged down in some of these exercises. I got to get my first line right. And then it would infect your brain. And like, I would rewrite the first line so often before I could get started with my next project or next book. And I started thinking, you know what? The first line is incredibly important. And you know what else? You can worry about it later. Mm. You can just get started on your story. It's not going to be done. You're not going to hit, you know, the end. You're not going to type the end and somebody's going to run in and snatch your computer from you and say, okay, that's it. Hope this was good. <laughs> You're not chiseling <laughs> it in stone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you, you get an opportunity to go fix it. So yes, the first line, it can be really impactful. It's a great opportunity to catch a reader immediately. It's a little bit overrated. People act like if your first line's not 
immaculate, then, you know, the reader stops reading. That's not really the way readers read. I've got a whole spiel on that, too. <laughs> but um, oh, I'll spare you that. But <laughs> the point being, you know, sometimes you get bogged down with these things. You lose confidence because people will even think, man, you know, that first line, I'm still getting tripped up on it. Okay, well, then write whatever you need to write to get past it and write the rest of your story. You'll have plenty of time to come back later and fine tune it and find the perfect first line for it and have it match up with the rest of the story and get it moving from there. So a lot of the time you put a ton of pressure on yourself that you don't have to. The last thing I'll say on it, when I was just in Tucson, somebody asked something relatively similar on the panel I was on. And Weston Oaks is a great author. He, he told the gentleman, you know, other than the people that you've just confessed this to in the room, because he said he was struggling with certain things. He said, normally what would happen? You don't tell anybody else this. Uh, <laughs> nobody knows that you don't know what you're doing except for you. Mm -hmm. You're the only person who's feeling like, I don't know what I'm doing. Everybody else, they have no clue. This is your story to tell. You're telling it how you want to tell it and just have that confidence. Nobody else has to know that you don't feel confident about it. Mm -hmm. And again, you're not chiseling it in stone, right? You're shaping it. This is the first mold. This is like a sculptor would probably do. You're getting a sketch. You get an idea. Before you actually start putting it in stone, you've got your blueprint put together. Think of your first draft as those things and give yourself in the first draft a chance before you, you self-reject. Mm, beautiful. I get pretty passionate about that. I know <laughs> that was long-winded. No, that was... It's, no, that's very original, very helpful. But speaking of the completed work of The Spite House, if there was one value that you'd want your readers to take away from The Spite House, what would that be? Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, the value, I think, I would, uh, <laughs> I would pull away from this. The character of Papa Fred is actually one of my favorites in mm. the book, and he mm. has his phrase of, you either make something happen or you let it happen. Mm. That's his philosophy on life. He doesn't think things happen for a reason. And even though you can't control everything, being proactive, I think that the Spite House is ultimately a story about a certain level of proactivity. It's not always going to be the right decision, mm. but the value of proactivity, I think, is pretty essential to some of the things that happen and kind of uh, not only not giving up, but anticipating a situation that's going to try to make you surrender and trying to head it off before it even gets there. Mm -hmm. That's definitely a message from a character who you're probably not supposed to. <laughs> I mean, the way he's, his, his advice is not meant to be the blueprint for how to live your life by any stretch. Oh, I dig Papa Fred, though. <laughs> I, I do, too. I, lo I love that guy, man. He's a fun character, and he's, he's only there for a little bit of time, and yet he has this huge impact on the story, and he's loving and menacing at the same time, and he protects his own but he also can offend his own people because he has this somewhat overbearing life philosophy. I kind of think that that's a great value that he has. Mm -hmm. If you can, you know, apply it effectively, everything's, you know, a matter of applying it effectively and when it's appropriate, et cetera. But yeah, be proactive and, you know, look for opportunities to make something happen as opposed to just allowing it to happen to you. Mm -hmm. I kind of think that, you know, if you take that away and again, don't abuse it. Don't misuse it. Yeah. But if, you know, if you try to do that in your everyday life, I think that that's a, a pretty good value for a, a lot of us to have. And hopefully being less reactive and more proactive can lead to more creative and inspired behavior. Awesome. Let me give a knock on the desk for that one. <laughs> well, Johnny, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Vince, it's been a pleasure. This has been a fantastic conversation, man. 
Oh, likewise. So as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers and listeners know about? Uh, the Obsolescence Anthology. I'll be part of the Obsolescence Anthology along with Clay McLeod Chapman, Gabino Iglesias, several other authors. And that is forthcoming, I believe, later this summer. I want to say May. But if you look up the Obsolescence Anthology, you'll find all the exact release date. And I know that that's forthcoming. And I'm very excited about it. Looking forward to it. I have a story in there that I'm very proud of. And that's really the only thing coming up that I have the liberty right now to plug. I'm working on book two. And so hopefully uh, that'll be out in the world sometime in the next year or so. And we'll see if the response to the second one is as, as positive as all the response has been for the Spite House. I'm very grateful for the response to the Spite House. Hmm. I'm sure it will. So listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Johnny, thank you again for joining me. Thanks again. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Stay tuned for the next episode. I've got an author and screenwriter lined up that I'm not going to reveal quite yet. So be sure to tune in next Tuesday. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Cloudy, it gets cloudy sometimes, and I don't know what to do. I can't see, it's just cloudy. It gets cloudy sometimes, and I don't know where to go or who to be. It's just cloudy, it gets cloudy sometimes. I don't know how to move, I can't breathe, it's just cloudy. It gets cloudy sometimes. Does it happen to you or just me? You should applaud this, you can't afford this. I'm living a dream and my mind is a fortress. Wait for the chorus, isn't it gorgeous? Hit them with precision, boy, we making them forfeit. Of course, it's a lot to contain. We got to refrain. It's getting even harder with the bots and the fame. We chase with a vengeance, facing amendments. Eyes on the necklace, it's due for a pendant. Damn, feeling like the man of the hour. But no one man should have all that power. Now we're getting somewhere till we get stopped. Get popped, pumping some gas up at the pit stop. Damn, is there something we can do or are we running out of time? Are we victims of ourselves or did somebody cross the line? cloudy sometimes and i don't know what to do i can't see it's just cloudy it gets cloudy sometimes and i don't know where to go or who to be it's just cloudy it gets cloudy sometimes i don't know how to move i can't breathe it's just cloudy it gets cloudy sometimes does it happen to you or just me you can't fake real you can't fake feels except for them plants they be giving them fake deals i won't say much making them say less 15 years i ain't taking a break yet this is a monster y'all been hiding Y'all been lying, I'll be thriving, won't be silent, could be violent. Everything I touch, we gon' call it the Midas, I'm righteous. Damn, feeling like the man of the hour, but no one man should have all that power. Now we're getting somewhere till we get stopped, get popped, pumping some gas up at the pit stop. something Damn. we can do or are we running out of time? Are we victims of ourselves or did somebody cross the line? Race.
peace in the course. Real with the brand, cause I take it from the source. God flow frequent and the most recent. God flow nigga that's far from just decent. Most high talk, no wonder why he sent. Me to take over the game, y'all just leasing. Pieces of me all over the globe. But it's still fixed, God, so y'all know where to go. I'm like, damn. Feeling like the man of the hour. But no one man should have all that power. Now it somewhere till we get stopped get popped pumping some gas up at the pit stop something we can do or are we running out of time are we victims of ourselves or did somebody cross the line